Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Okay, so before I introduce the guest, I want to ask you guys a quick favor. I promise it will only take a minute. If you can please go to iTunes, give me a five-star rating, a short, short review, glowing, of course, would be preferable. I would really appreciate it. Today on the podcast, Kevin Bartell. Kevin's a successful producer. He runs the American arm of Love Productions. They're probably best known for the Great British Bake Off. That's a huge hit in the UK. It's become popular here too. Kevin started on the agent's desk playing ping pong with other agent's assistants and worked his way up through the production world and then to the network side. And actually the story of how he ended up at Spike is a good one that includes a death threat. At Love Now, he's producing shows for Discovery, Nat Geo Wild, and best known for his two premium docuseries in Netflix, West Side and Made in Mexico, which you definitely want to check out. Okay, we're here. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. Of course, of course. I appreciate it. We're at your lovely offices in Culver City. Thank you. Gorgeous view. Uh, you can thank, Views. this is Jason Carbone's old office. Actually. You know, it's so weird that you said that because when I walked in, I said, God, this feels like Jason's office because I went there probably four years ago. I have to say that as a disclaimer, because the, we're a British company and our UK offices are like super run down and like they take pride in how run down they are. And when we were looking for new office space, this just happened to be like the exact right size and the right place. Um, and and they came over and they're like, of course, you're like a penthouse guy with this crazy corner office. It's like, I didn't, we just like moved in and we didn't have to change anything. Right. You know? Yeah. No, so, it's, it looked, I was having you, a deja vu feeling and now I know I'm not crazy. Yeah. The only thing we did was it was very, it was all baby blue and we made the whole thing white. It was like Robin, the, the entire office was Robin egg blue. Okay. No comment. <laughs> I yeah. like the white. Yeah. Thank you. It looks good. It looks good. Um, well, I'm psyched that we're doing this. I emailed you because I was watching Made in Mexico and I became yep. obsessed. Yep. And I was like, who, who, who made this? Who made Made in Mexico? And yep. it was you. And then I saw you posting things for West Side on yep. Netflix. And I'm like, wow, these are two like really high-end docu-series for Netflix. What, what are you up to over here? So, And I had known you a little bit from Spike. Yep. Um, and I'd heard that you had come here. So... Um, so yeah, so we have a lot to talk about. I wanted to start at the beginning, if that's okay. Perfect. So where were you good, born? Good now? place to start. <laughs> you don't, we don't need to go that far back, but, um, I know you went to USC Yep. and then kind of what was the yeah, path after that? Yeah, I went to that? USC and then ended up, uh, like all the advice I got from all of the different people I met was to like, go be an agent's assistant. And so everyone I, likes giving that advice, by the way, that seems to be it's like, good advice. go work on a desk. Yeah. It's good advice. Cause you get, you get, you kind of see everything. And so actually my first boss was, uh, Seth Lawrence at Rebel Entertainment. Oh, really? Yep. Um, and so I worked for him, uh, and I became very close with another one of the assistants, uh, JC Mills. Yeah. I love and, JC. Yeah. And so we always had like, um, no offense, Seth or Rebel. We always had intentions of like going to the bigger agency. The whole thing was like scheming on like, how do we get into like CAA or William Morris? And, and who's we? Like the people? JC and me. Oh, oh, you guys were together. Yes. Okay, yeah, we both had plans. I was like, who's going to get there first? Um, and so we ended up actually starting a, a beer pong league for assistants to like <laughs> get people together. Uh, and it 
was like every Tuesday and we would have, we, we would have like 60 to 70 assistants like every Tuesday from like all the agencies, all the production companies, scripted, unscripted, uh, um, un, um, feature films, kind of everybody. Um, and we had a bunch of like CA teams, so we became close with them. So we had all these assistants come to this beer pong league that ended up, uh, JC like cut a deal with the bar and that ended up paying our rent for like um, a few years because we would make like cash off of like the amount of money that was coming into the bar. So that was like his first into like being an agent. Um, but became close with the CAA guys. And eventually when the right desk opened up in, in motion picture, which is what I originally thought I wanted to do, I took it and Seth was definitely pissed. Um, so I got like fired and hired on the exact same day um, wow. because he didn't want to, uh, I guess he was upset that like he felt like I was not loyal. Um, even though it was like apples and oranges, like I thought I wanted to work in feature films and right. And it's not, a completely was, different yeah. business. Um, Is he still pissed? Uh, well, the second I became a buyer, he became less pissed. <laughs> so funny how that yeah, just disappears. Amazing, right. Um, so I've made, I've made nice with all of my former rebel <laughs> entertainment, um, colleagues. Uh, so was it a total night and day going from TV to film? It was, it was total night and day in not a good way for me. Like when you're in motion picture at CAA, uh, it was, your job is to read terrible scripts. And so every weekend I would spend reading 10 to 12 horrendous scripts, hoping that maybe one was good. And, and you kind of realize like what separates the good screenwriters from the bad ones. And, but what I saw, and this was like pre 2007 writer's strike, what I saw is that like, I was sick of the movies getting like set up and then falling apart, set up and then falling apart, set up and then falling apart. And I would go to these premieres and I would ask people about the actual like putting together the project and selling it and and having it get made and then would find out that it would take like 10 years. <laughs> right. And I'm like, what? Like that's way too slow. Way too slow. Yeah. And for, for me, it's like a little bit, I need like a little bit more like ADD. Yeah. I wanted um, something that had kind of more of a cycle. And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to go work in uh, the like TV packaging, right, at the time. And I was like, if there's a, you screenwriters write pilots, they sell the pilot, they make the pilot, it goes or it doesn't, you know, and it's like rinse and repeat. It's like, that, that makes sense. So I went to CAA's uh, Human Resources Department and they said, no. Like, why would you want to transfer out of our Tiffany department? It's like all of our partners, our motion picture lit agents. It's like, you're on the Steven Spielberg team. You're on the Robert Zemeckis team. Why would you want to go slum it in TV? And they just didn't understand. <laughs> right. and, and so I was like, I guess I have to make another move after a couple of years. And I became friendly with a... Uh, a writer named Peter Tolan, who at the time yeah. was working on Rescue Me, I believe, or was just wrapping up Rescue Me. And I said, I think I'm going to go be like a non-writing creative executive, like Aaron Kaplan. And he's like, yeah, that's that's easy. He's like, he's like this writer strike is going to happen. And this it's going to be a huge, gigantic purge of our industry. And all of the fat is going to get like cut whether you're like a low level CE or working as a, you know, shitty, your junior manager at some small boutique place, like that's going to go away. And like those, the Aaron Kaplan's of the world or Ben Silverman are like few and far between. And, 
and this is the absolute worst time for you to try that. You should really think about going into reality TV. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, I, I, I had some contacts back from um, Rebel and I started just like junior producing anything I could get in with. And I did some things with um, Joe Sharon when she was at IMG and some other things with Laura Fust when she was uh, show running. And I, I was a little bit different than the other kind of like APs and junior producers because I understood like the agency game. I still had access to like the buyer's needs. And I was self-aware enough to know that I wasn't going to get the meetings with the buyers for shows that I developed, but they were. So at l lunch, I would take advantage of that and I would start pitching out ideas to them. They'd be like, you're not, you're not a normal like <laughs> person that came up as like a PA and is now an AP or a segment producer, a field producer. Um, you should really think about like getting into development. And it was actually Joe Sharon uh, and Laura, both, th that introduced me to Eli Holtzman uh, when he was starting a company called Studio Lambert. So I went and met with him. And at the time, it was like run out of his like apartment in uh, Venice Beach. Uh, and then they were moving into a converted landscape warehouse. And he said, I've got no money. And uh, you can be like, the basically head of development and head of ordering toilet paper and like, <laughs> I'll take it, you know, and, and doing everything. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, sounds amazing. I'm, I'm in. Uh, and, and, so, and for, I don't know if you know this, but for my listeners, I interviewed Eli um, and Aaron who, yep. who now are, well, they changed from industrial, from IPC to industrial is yep. a new name, but, and that was my only podcast to date that was a two-parter because it was so wow. good and so juicy and so long. So I had to make it a two-parter. So you joined up with him. I joined up with him pre-Undercover Boss Day. And you're talking about like Stephen Lambert who had Wife Swap and Faking It and Secret Millionaire uh, when he was at RDF. And you had Eli who had Project Runway, Project Greenlight, Beauty and the Geek. But like people didn't give a shit. Like those early days at Studio Lambert pre-Undercover Boss were like not easy as a you know, a startup. Like we were legit in a converted landscape warehouse with like racks on the walls <laughs> where people, where they like kept their um, rakes. You know, it was, it was definitely not zoned to be a, a, Interesting. a, a um, an office. I don't know if Eli left that part of it out. Yeah, he didn't. So, so it was a UK company and yep. Eli was basically picked to, to yep. start the American, which is funny because you're running now an American. Yep. I've got a thing for bald Brits. Stephen <laughs> and Richard are both bald and That's British. Funny. Um, yeah, so, so Studio Lambert was the first company that all three invested in from the beginning. Oh, interesting. Uh, all the others were established companies that they acquired mm -hmm. and then kind of folded them in. And Studio Lambert was the first one that did that. And it was actually ICM, and I think it was Michael Kagan that introduced Eli to Stephen because uh, mm. Greg represented Stephen, Michael represented... Eli and, and I think it was between Eli and like Brant Pavidic maybe. Oh, really? Uh, for that job. Yeah. Totally I interviewed him too. <laughs> totally different personalities. Very like night and day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Both. And both Greg good. for everyone is Greg Lipstone. Yep. Who was running ICM at the time. Yep. Yeah. Um, unscripted. And, and then Undercover Boss, we did the pilot. It took forever to cast that show and we did the pilot and, you know, Eli was there the whole time. Was that a UK format first? That, that was a UK format. The, the amazing history of that show, which is crazy considering I'm in this job right now, is Richard McCaro pitched Jen Bresnan a show called Undercover Boss. Okay. 
Uh, and Jen, it was just a paper like treatment at that point, and they were taking it out in the UK simultaneously. And Jen was like, absolutely not. Like, Wait, no. and who's Jen? Jen Bresnan, who was running CBS Alternative at the okay. time. Jen Bresnan goes on vacation. Stephen Lambert at the time had shot a pilot for a show called Undercover Boss with a, um, I think it was like a, like a timeshare, like kind of vacation um, thing in the UK, right? And so he cut together a sizzle reel, super emotional, like really, really well done sizzle reel. And we pitched it out here. And because of Steven and Greg, we pitched Nina Tassler. Uh, and I'm trying to remember, maybe it was like Chris Costello was yeah. in, the, in the room. And so she, she like, before the sizzle reel was over, she like pulled in the, the tissue box and she's like, I love this. Oh like I God. want it. And then Mike Darnell wanted it. Mike Darnell wanted the like gotcha, right. <laughs> like bad employees, like you're going to get your comeuppance. God. And she wanted the like very emotional. kind of emotional, feel good uh, show. And when Jen Bresnan got back from vacation, Nina told her, hey, I bought this show called Undercover Boss. And she's like, what do you mean? I passed on that show. Oh, did she get fired? No. Okay. <laughs> no, no, she was, no. Um, wow. Because yeah. that's not a story that you want to- Crazy. Publicize. You know what I mean? Like, that's not a proud moment. It goes on to become a hit show, and you're huge, the one who passed on it. Huge hit show. Yeah. That's a, that is a wild story. And that and, just shows, like, the subjectivity of everything we do, yeah, right? Yeah. And in her defense, the uh, at the time, it was, like, just a paper treatment from the the love people. Got it. Without a sizzle. And it was a sizzle reel, which really kind of brought that idea to life. Uh, and But we made a bunch of changes- for the CBS version, like on the on the UK version, there wasn't uh, there there wasn't that big moment at the end where you know people are getting their college paid for or you know the truck that they always needed or mm-hmm. any other stuff. That was like specific for CBS, and the the magic of kind of Eli and helping kind of develop that is we went to thousands of companies to try to get that one to do that pilot, and they all said no. And it was really like Eli sitting down at the table across from the president at the time of, of waste management that said yes. And then that thing ended up behind the Super Bowl, nominated for an Emmy, 50 something million people. And the company like took off like a rocket ship. Which is amazing because intuitively you would, the, the reason why everybody passed company wise is because they think it would be horrible to show what really goes on at a company. Yeah. Instead it had the obvious, it had the opposite effect. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Those first, I think it was like the first six or eight, which was the first season, were really tough to cast. I'm and then sure. after that, it was like, phew, they all were coming, they were incoming calls trying to to get on the show because it, you know, it did so well. And it, it spoke to the, it spoke to how people were feeling about, you know, their jobs. And it was like a love letter to the American worker, but it was still super corporate friendly. And it hit this like crazy four quadrant. And so everyone was watching it. It was like, I mean, Good show. I always wonder when someone's developing something. And so when you were working on that, did you feel like this is going to be a hit? Uh, we knew we knew after seeing the first couple shows that like you could not help but cry at the end. Yeah. And so like there was always that thing like pulled you through. And it was a good mix of like comedy, heart, and then like that moment at the end, which like really like very emotional. So we knew that would work. We, I don't think any of us expected it to have the impact that it did. And, you know, went on to do over a hundred episodes and now they're doing celebrity version, which is slightly weird to me, but. Oh, they are? Yeah. CBS's? Oh, yeah. wait, but They're undercover. not bosses, they're celebrities right. undercover, but it's called Undercover Boss. Okay. 
Um, it's still happening. Right. <laughs> okay, good. Yep. So how long did you stay with Eli? I was there probably close to six years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and I think Aaron came in, Aaron came in for a presentation we were doing for MTV called like, it was like reality freaks and geeks. And he had to convince a school board in Michigan to let us follow these like lovable nerds around. Um, and it was with Heather Olander. So it was like Heather Olander and Aaron in Michigan for a couple of weeks. And then he stayed as we like expanded and, and we kind of divided the uh, shows that he would do and then shows that I would do. He got to do like the, the big shiny four type stuff like Supermarket Superstar and, you know, Million Second Quiz. And they sent my ass to <laughs> all the crazy ones, which is like Diamond Divers and like Rat Bastards for for Spike. And then is that how, is that connection to how you ended up at Spike? Thousand percent. Okay. Yeah. So, so what's Di that Diamond Divers was a, one of those shows that was like a bit of a cluster and <laughs> just a lot of things just happened to be going wrong. And what was it? It was underwater it was, diving. It was a, yeah, it was diamond. a show about marine diamond mining off the west coast of South Africa. And we were taking, we had uh, a kind of a first look deal with these like really creative producers, Roy Malloy, Duke Straub and, and Colt, who were the Lumberjack crew and now they're American Chainsaw. Um, and so they found these Americans that were going to go, they found the diamond vessel in South Africa and they found these Americans that were gonna go kind of be captain and, and live on this boat as they like went after, um, you know, marine mining to try to like get rich. And, and there's like a, a, uh, a scuba aspect to it too. Cause basically they're vacuuming up the ocean floor and then diamonds are underneath the ocean floor and then they cool. would keep them. Yeah. So like super crazy adventure show. However, we got like, we found out the difference between American time, like the boat is ready, and then South African time, the boat is ready. So we ended up shooting <laughs> like the first month and a half and like the boat like never left the dock. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so all that footage started coming back to us. Did the viewers know? Like, could you fake it? Well, hold on. <laughs> the story is good. So the view, the the footage starts coming back and Chris Rantamaki was overseeing the show at the time. And so Eli and Liz Bronstein, who was the showrunner, we're, we're looking at stuff and Chris is like, what is this? This is not, this is not going to like pass the smell test with, St with Sharon. Like you guys had to fix this. Uh, and, and basically Eli was like, okay, Kevin, you're getting on a plane and you're going to South Africa and you've got to like fix this show. Like we need, we need drama. We need, uh, you know, conflict. Like we've got no diamonds. We, the boat isn't. Yeah, we need that boat to leave. <laughs> yeah, it's like you got to figure out like what the hell is going on because like they're pissed, you know. And so I got on a plane, went down there. We found out that the actual pump that they had on the boat would never have worked. So we like found a company to come in, completely re uh, redo the boat that was supposed to go out, and and basically like I produced a fight the first night I was out there and an underwater fight. No, okay. <laughs> it was like, this one was on land. Okay. Uh, and these two, the two divers who were from Houston did not agree, did not weren't getting along in real story with the guys in Washington. However, anytime there was conflict, 
the camera guys would just turn off the camera. Oh, God. So it's kind of like the opposite of what Spike wanted. Oh, my God. So I, pr- I produced... Or a, anyone. I mean, yeah, or like anyone, keep any rolling. Yeah. yeah. So I, pr- I, I helped them get their feelings out on camera. In a I way like that the way you're phrasing that. Yeah, yeah. This is, I'm going to borrow that. We're just, what already was naturally coming yes. out, we're just, you yeah. know, facilitating. Exactly. So and then they were happy. Well... They were happy. The captain was not happy because he felt like I undermined the whole thing. So the next morning I got like a knock on the door and I had this like six foot six captain uh, telling me he needed a meeting with me immediately. And he pulled out his recorder, started recording it. He said I like breached his contract, which said I couldn't show him in a derogatory light. And then he decided to pull out a knife and hold it to my throat. No. Yeah. Were you terrified? Um, no. Really? No, because he's he was, he's actually a soft guy, but like that was just like soft guy with a sharp knife. Yes, a soft guy with a sharp knife, and <laughs> oh my god! And then I was like, well, I was like, here's the deal: like, <laughs> we've got nothing as far as like usable footage. We've used over basically at this point over about two thirds of like our production windows. Like, we've got to like make it happen yeah and you guys can either be on board and like give us a show that we need or like you know the show's probably gonna get pulled so they all like got on board and we cobbled together those uh episodes and we got back i think it was like an eight episode order we got back into post i'm like hey we only have enough for like four episodes and they uh we're gonna have to shoot pickups in the new year and and the price for pickups was too much. And so Sharon's like, the the minimum order that we'll take and still be considered a full season is six. So like you guys have to figure that piece out. So I said, okay. So basically that was my directorial debut shooting <laughs> a quasi feature length uh, pickup shoot on the uh, the hard waters of the Marina <laughs> Marina. Uh, Del Rey Dock. Stop. Yes. Which so was we, supposed to be South Africa. 100%. So we shot, <laughs> How did it measure up? We shot, we shot, we oh shot storm my. sequences. Oh we God. shot toachers stalking boats. How did, did you know what you were doing? As far as like putting it together. Yeah, we, like so how we did had, you know we how had to do little, all that? We had little like story moments okay. where there were like some usable stuff. And so basically we had to match that, but then make it like dramatic. So and, you had to like create a storm? Well, so they, they went through a crazy storm, a crazy storm so bad we all did okay. that people thought they were legitimately going to die. So they did not roll cameras on that. But we have like some fixed cameras that rolled. So I was like with fishing line, oh you know, like making a fishing line and squirt guns, like making it look like they were taking on Stop. water, like in the crew quarters. Yeah, oh, that's a great story. It became one of Sharon's favorites. And it's how she got to like know me. Okay. Um, and and after because you saved of, the show, I, I was <laughs> partially responsible for helping get the show back on track. I wouldn't say I, I was like the full like savior of the show because it, it takes a lot it takes a of different people to do it. But um, it was that, and then Rat Bastards, which had its own issues. So I became very kind of aware of like what Spike was looking for, what they at the time had um, kind of been moving in direction wise, and she had been after me a while to like come join her team as, as like Tim Duffy was starting his own company and Chris Rentamaki was getting elevated and they were kind of adding, uh, 
network executives. And I had always said, no, 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 no. Because why would I leave? Like all three at the time was one of the hottest companies. And I loved working with Eli and, and, and Aaron and, and, and the family that we had kind of at, at Studio Lambert. Now we were all three. So we were in charge of like a very kind of big, robust business and, and a bunch of companies. And we were overseeing everything. Um, there was no reason to leave. And Sharon said, Kevin, let me give you some free advice. When a network EVP asks to sit down and just have a conversation, you sit down and you have the conversation. I'm not saying you have to take the job, but you sit down and have the conversation. And we all know how like convincing yeah, and I, I had charismatic this very she can be. similar <laughs> conversation with Chachi. Yeah. Yeah. He's like yeah. not interested at all in going to a network. Yeah. And then next thing you know. Yeah, but the reason I did it is one, it felt like the right time because all three was going through the sale with Discovery. So it was it was changing even more. And and for me, we had sold I mean, I think we had sold like 20 or something series off the heels of Undercover Boss. And, wow. and it was really like a small team that was overseeing it. And, and in my opinion, some of the shows lacked the creative oversight that was needed. And so we made some like bad shows that like didn't work. And then there were the good shows that like never really got their day in court. No programming strategy, no marketing strategy, no digital strategy, no press strategy. So frustrating. Like, so frustrating. And, yeah. and for me, when you're looking at budgets and you're saying, you just spent $4 million yeah. on this show, like you're just going to put it up and it's an hour show and you're putting it on at 1030. Like, how does that make sense? I, I needed to figure that out for myself. And the best way to do that is like in bed with like... My thing was like, I'm going into the right. It's star. like under, you were undercover yes, boss. thousand <laughs> percent. What did you learn? Uh, what did I learn? That the departments don't communicate, that decisions are made by committee. And at, and in today, which I guess was four years ago uh, when I was over there, it, decisions are made by fear, unfortunately, because at that time the, the boom had ended and, and shows were, you know, shows were new shows were hard to launch and there was more content than ever being produced for more channels than had ever been on the air and it was really hard to like drive viewers to new shows and and so i saw that like it was that period before chris mccarthy where mtv was just like hemorrhaging viewers and then you i would be in you know uh meetings where they would talk about digital strategy for the group They'd be like, we're going to get people to watch 43 minutes on their phone. I was like, oh, shit, that's your digital strategy? Like, <laughs> you know, Viacom's in trouble. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I also saw that network executives aren't ex necessarily the best pitch men and women. Like, so when development's done by committee and you spend a bunch of time and effort developing something and you're now relying on somebody that's not as attached to it, pitching to a room with a bunch of, executives that are probably on their phone, not focused. It's like, I saw a lot of good ideas not get their day in court. Yeah. What did it teach you when you went back to the seller side about how to be a better seller? Uh, well, I always knew I was going to get back to the other side. <laughs> You're just um, waiting, just counting yeah, your days. Well, no, no. <laughs> I actually, I actually loved my time there. And like, I was uh, like Ink Master was my show. and. That's awesome. And that was like a fun kind of ride for like a couple of years and still like doing really well. Yeah. So I did all the kind of crazy bigger format stuff. The first show that they put me on was $10 million Bigfoot Bounty. It was a competition show oh, yeah. searching for Bigfoot. Right. <laughs> uh, one of those better, better in title than in execution. <laughs> but um, so what I learned, well, one, the reason I, 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 
always know I'd get back to the producer side. It's, it's for me, that's the only place you can be creatively fulfilled because you have the ability of doing a diverse type of projects. Right. I know? mean, at Spike, you're just doing male programming at the time. Yeah. And, 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 and as they kind of tried to expand right, into broader. general entertainment, they still have these silos. And you saw that the networks that are really working, and it's the networks that are working right now, have a hyper-specific brand identity. Yeah. And they know exactly what their audience is. And every show deviates maybe 5%, you know? And and so as far as like doing different types of things, that just doesn't exist. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I always knew that I would have to get back on, on this side. And love was kind of that perfect opportunity uh, because... It was a British company, so I, I knew the value of like formats coming across, right. and and kind of I saw how entertainment was becoming very kind of global, uh, and and separately it had a large parent company, and for me that was important because I saw the consolidation that was happening, and being an independent small production company, you live and die by the series order, right, and like you know, audits and cash flow schedules and you know making sure like insurance is handled all, all this stuff if you don't have a parent company is is hard yeah you can't even keep the lights on no it's and, yeah so that was smart yeah so so i needed a place with like runway <laughs> Inf and, and infrastructure and, and infrastructure and yeah. sky and and love was that that opportunity and really believed in like you know obviously the great british bake-off and and what appealed about love is they had the great british bake-off but then they won a bafta for this show called muslims like us so it's really a company that was built off socially provocative formats, but then kind of fell into the Great British Bake Off. Yeah. And I so love you that they did do both, anything. And you yeah. wouldn't ever know that the same company would be able to pull off both. Right. So like that became my thing when we were here. It's like we want to just be known for being great storytellers. And and I, you know, owe that to Eli because when he was starting Studio Lambert, the approach he did is he looked at all the different companies and he said, the L's do one type of show really well. Burnett does one type of show really well. You know, Polygian does one type of thing really well. You know, Left Field does one. He's like, well, what if we could try to do all of it? And, you know, more or less, we succeeded in that. Um, and and that's my intention here. So our approach has been, like, and why we have so much Netflix business is we develop less, better. Yeah. And so we really... Quality over quantity. 100%. And so it's no longer a like scatter shotgun approach to like ideas. You know, if we, it's every single detail is like fully thought out. Well, it's so funny that you say that because when I was I was watching, I watched only the first episode of West Side, but now I'm hooked. Of course, so I have to continue. Mm -hmm. But I kept thinking like, oh, my God, in this one hour episode, this feels like it took a year and a half to produce a one episode. And I don't feel that way watching most oh, that's quote unquote reality. Did. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that thing is the like that's avatar a beast. Of, that is a beast. You, yeah. I don't know. You took on. I mean, that was probably like. What have I done? I mean, I'm thinking like, cause that is, there's like four music videos yep. in one episode. Yep. A music video is its own beast. Yep. Plus like it's kind of that hybridized Hills sort of like yep. it's unscripted, but it feels scripted. I mean, yep. so it's sort of like a movie almost. Yep. I mean, that that's thing, because it looked that way. It, that thing gorgeous. is very real. I was of course yes. looking at like, um, you know, who the, I always like when I love something, who the DPs are because yep. I always James want Carroll for sure. Gorgeous. Yep. I mean, really beautifully shot. Yeah. So, how did that, was that your idea? That was, yeah. I, so did, I had a partner. So say what it is first so yeah, people so know. Westside is a, a we, we wanted to reinvent the music genre 
was it our opinion when you looked at the way music shows are done on television it's like it's all the same kind of competition show and and for me what these competition shows lack is like getting back to the roots and that's the early days of idol when you could actually launch stars out of it yeah and it's because you cared about the people more than you cared about the judges mm-hmm. like the if you look at yeah no it's true it's carrie underwood right it's kelly, kelly clarkson. clarkson it's um well jennifer, jennifer hudson, hudson win, yeah. yeah fantasia and and then try to name a voice winner recently, I know. or try to na- name or any vo- or, or any voice winner, yeah, or, yeah. or four winner. Like you yeah. can't, and it's because you're focused on the judges and you're not focused on the actual personalities. Yeah. No, that's so true. We're like, what if you can make? What if you can tell a story where you care about the people, and then you will ultimately end up caring about their music, and that kind of like aha moment. We we um, this cast and 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 the origination of the idea was brought in by a, a partner of mine, Michael Flutie. Um, and when we first looked at and met with Sean, who was, uh, the guy that kind of brought the cast together and we put kind of him and his friends on tape, we're like, does the world need another music? Does the world need another show set in LA, a docu-soap set in LA? I was like, there's some, but there's something like really interesting about, you know, kids in their mid to late twenties who are still pursuing their dreams in like a major way. You know, they probably should have taken the accounting job. Or they probably should have like, you know, stopped being a, a waiter and gotten into like corporate America, but they're still like doing it. And 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 I, and I think there's a little bit of performer in everybody, but these are the kids that like have the balls to kind of like put it all out there. And and we're like, but we want to tell it in a way that's like super gritty and real. And they're all kind of working towards the same goal, which was they were Sean came with this idea, which is like bottle service meets Broadway, and it's going to live at One Oak, and it's going to take advantage of a club. Uh, atmosphere before a club is open. It's a kind of like pre-dinner uh, type show. And so we just followed that process for close to six months. And then we got into the edit bay, cut the episodes together and identified the two to three character or storyline defining moments of each episode. And, and built then the we music went to go, video. And oh then my we went God. To, hold on, hold on. Then we went to the producers and writers to work with our cast to create that song. Right. And then we did the music oh videos. Oh my after God. That. Yeah. Oh my God. So for the music video part of it, mm-hmm. was that a whole other production team that does like music videos? Cause those were actual, those weren't just like, let's figure it out nope. in post. Those were produced was, storyboarded music yep, videos. That was very much, uh, that was <laughs> like its own director. Much, no, yep. Oh so we originally pitched it having the same director doing all of it. And then that, I think everyone was afraid that it would feel too, um, one, maybe there wouldn't be that separation between the reality and what we call the music videos, like their fantasy. So it's like an ode to Chicago. Right. <laughs> um, but we went and we found this woman, Melinda Kelly, who does all of Maroon 5's videos and has worked on the label side as a, a video commissioner. And basically she would look at the song and then she would go out to the directors to that that we would bring in. and. You know, we there there is not a soundtrack that has been produced that's had more Grammy winners than than ours, and or really? more, yeah, or more um, more award winning directors than ours, and and that you could only get with like the support, the heavy support of like Netflix, and they like, you know, they back this project. How did you pitch it to Netflix? We pitch it to Netflix that this is either going to be their biggest success or biggest bomb that they've, that right. they've ever I mean, done. Because it's, 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 it's a show, like, 
We Huge spent we spent forty thousand dollars on a sizzle reel because I needed a proof of concept. Yeah, I believe that paid development is death to good ideas, and that Netflix or not Netflix that networks will kill you by a thousand cuts. It will take three months to do a development deal for twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> You're gonna end up go casting something. Some executive is gonna get fired. Like they're oh going my to God, Kevin, they're gonna, preach they're gonna, preach. They're gonna they're gonna. They're gonna uh, change the show, change the show, change the show, change the show, change the show. And then you're going to be so invested with your own money that you're going to take the series order. It got, uh, you know, if it gets picked up to series, you're going to take that series order and make a show that you don't actually believe in because you don't want to just have been wasting the six months it took to get it to that point. Yeah, listen, I agree. Well, let's just stop here for a second. I agree with everything you just said a million times over, but let's just admit the flip side is you could spend 40000 on that tape and it could not sell. Thousand percent, and, <laughs> right. and this I actually owe to Craig Pelligian. And one of the beauty of being at the network side is like you see everyone. Like we had our style at Studio Lambert, and and when you're at when I was at Spike, I got you know Brent Montgomery, Tom Foreman, Sally Ann, right? You know Pelligian. You you kind of Ben Silver, and you saw everyone's style, their sizzle, their reels. And what I loved about what he did is like that guy had the balls to like go out there and shoot a tape with a cast that he believes in. He's like series offers only. Right. You're like, fuck. Yeah. It's like we spent like three three to five thousand dollars on a reel at Studio Lambert and and this guy's like really believing it. And he was in front of the game because he, he didn't sell it to Spike, but he sold it somewhere else. And then he bet forty forty thousand to make, you know, X yeah. right on a series instead of getting stuck in development hell, which is the bane of, you know, every producer or production company's existence. So like we our approach is we're taking, you know, six or seven things out a year, hoping that three or four of those get picked up to series. And and of those six or seven, we're only developing things that we believe can go multiple. Seasons. I was just going to say that because even a first season doesn't mean anything anymore. No. Yeah, I mean the money and sort of everything else that follows will come in succession. Yeah. So with this one, is the cast that you put together for the sizzle reel the one that ended up on screen? <laughs> no, I'll show, I'll show you. Hold on one second. Wait, this came to the sizzle this. That went with the sizzle reel. Oh my god! So this is basically like those a, are our decks. A, a book. Yep. This is not a deck. This is a book. Yep. With pictures. Yep. It looks like a coffee table book. Yep. Oh my god, that is so cool. So this is with. Okay. This is so so basically Sean, yeah, who's the Sean guy Patrick that Murray's was working with guy. working with Michael, and he brought uh, a group of best friends that all performed on a cruise ship together for a show called The Brat Pack, right? So they were a very kind of white yeah. group of friends that that performed on a Norwegian cruise line for six months and they became best friends. Right. And they all ended up moving back to LA and they wanted to like take fate into their own hands by developing their own show, right? So we went out and we shot with this group of friends. Then we went to a composer and we wrote a song based on the story that we had. Then we, we went out and shot kind of our the music elements and cut it all together. So it ended up being like a 12 minute reel. Wow. Um, Who'd you take it to? Did you take it to like the broadcast networks? Yeah, uh, we took it to the broadcast networks. We got a lot of like, huh? They, they must have thought you were crazy. They did. But then, they, but then they all, then they all, a lot of them afterwards said they would have wanted it, but I think they were so risk adverse to like something that was, you know, so genre bending. Um, because it wasn't the traditional like shiny floor like competition show, so we but we did get we had a massive bidding war between you know 
four different places. Really? Can you say who? Two stream. It was Amazon and Netflix, and and then two like cable places. Okay. But weren't. But it was really between Amazon and Netflix. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. So did that happen before Made in Mexico? So. Or concurrent. So, <laughs> kind of concurrent. So so Made in Mexico, uh, Shed. You can thank Love Productions because Mexican <laughs> Dynasties Ouch. came out of it. Um, oh really? Yes, because that was going to be basically a casting to series at Bravo. And then our agents, this was right when Brandon and Jen started, sent uh, the casting reel over to- Get out of here. Yeah, to, to Brandon and Jen. And so when we pitched this, we actually had a, like a two-part thing. So the first part was the pitch for this. And then we were talking about Made in Mexico and they ended up ordering both. So we had like wow. two of their first orders and- both like Brandon and Jen were like scratching their heads because they're like, why are we buying two <laughs> docu-soaps from a company that doesn't do docu-soaps? You that, know? That's a, you must've been psyched. Yeah, yeah, super. Um, I'm but then scared. It was, oh yeah, yeah. But I think- So we the felt, casting for, okay, so just people know, and I did interview yeah. Pam Healy. I think she was my last, second to last interview. Um, and she teased this uh, Mexican yep. Dynasty show coming up on Bravo. So- they saw the casting for that show, but you had to obviously recast. It's not the same show. It's different families. Oh, no, no, no. So, yes, they saw our original reel. Okay. Which, uh, uh, and they're like, we we want to do casting. And then Netflix is like, we'll oh. go to series. Oh, and then, so Bravo's and like, okay, we should do forth. a Mexico show. Ooh, juicy. And then it, and then it was, who's going to get to air first? Yeah, and you guys did. And do we know if there's going to be a second season yet of Made in Mexico? We're working on that right now, yeah. Oh, good. I loved it. I thought it was super interesting. One of the things, everyone should see it. Um, one of the things I loved about it is that it broke the fourth wall a lot. And yep. I love shows that break the fourth wall. I just think it's sort of like we know we're shooting. Because I watch a lot of docus. That's yep. my stuff more than sort of shiny floor stuff. And uh, and it's always like we can't speak about what's happening until the reunion. And then we can discuss the fact that we're on a reality show. But yep. in the meantime, we just have to act like the cameras aren't there. Which is like we've all bought into that as an audience. It's fine. Mm -hmm. But this show is like all the time in the interviews and even in the verite is just like, well, you're doing this for the cameras. You're doing this because we're on the show. And you're like, oh my God, they're talking about the show. Yeah. So that was a conscious decision. That was a conscious decision when we got out there and we were in it. You know, I think okay. what, what we do a really good job of is one, like it's all about prep and having a plan when we go out. And then we were like super prepared and then embracing the story as it unfolds and adapting to that and allowing our showrunners to like take chances. Yeah. And like for us, it's about like, let's break the rules and everything should be a little bit left of center. And let's, let's try to kind of like elevate the genre by, uh, you know, making it cinematic and, yeah. and then also like advancing the story, like the storytelling forward. Yeah. I mean, I have to say it, it was beautiful. I agree cinematically, but it wasn't, you let it breathe. The drama did not feel manufactured. It wasn't, yeah. The storylines, like, it honestly took, like, four or five episodes even for there to be any conflict, I think. Yep. I mean, there was sort of, like, some stuff going on, but it was, it felt real. That was what was, was so sort of refreshing about it. Yep. But also kind of aspirational, which is why yep. we love watching that stuff. And, yep. um, like, even that one couple, of course, I've forgotten all the names, where you're, like, in their tiny apartment in their fight with them yep, in their bedroom. Yeah, yeah, like, that was, I was so uncomfortable Yeah, in the best way, because I'm like, this is so, like, a real fight, and we're yeah. in this tiny little room with them in this yeah. fight. 
Yeah, we've been a lot. A lot of the stuff we've been taking more of like a doc filmmaking approach. Yeah. So it's like a smaller footprint over a longer period of time, and that allows for your cast to not feel like they're walking on set and, and yeah. just allow them to like live their life. And like that's when when it when you when you have that with the the luxury of having a partner like Netflix, so the ability to have a a production timeline that life can actually happen. That's when you're going to get the good stuff. When you're like, I've got to shoot an episode of TV. A doc, I've got to shoot forty something minutes in TV, and in three days, it's like you're 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 producing the whole thing. No, it's true. It's yeah. a really great point, and and that's what's so nice about a place like Netflix that lets yep. you know allows you with the budget and the yep. time to do it the right way. Important question: Is the model and the nightclub guy still together? They are not still together. Oh, Pepe. No. I mean, I didn't see that long yeah, term. Pe but. Yeah, no. They. There's definitely that infatuation between them. Yeah. But like they'll 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 be like that on again, off again right. for sure. <laughs> well, they won't. They. Okay. Yeah. So, um, what do you have on deck? What's coming up? Because you so, guys are on fire now. Uh, thank you. We've got <laughs> things airing right now. So we have. Uh, Bad Chad Customs on on Discovery, which is like our take on a kind of automotive build show that's doing really well on on Tuesday nights after awesome. Garage Rehab, and and we've got Dead by Dawn, which is on Natchea Wild, and that's our take on the the stale natural history space. It's and with the Walking Dead people, right? Skybound, yeah. So it's like a horror show with it's animals. It's completely done as a, it's more, it's more like a suspense thriller than okay. it is like gory cool. Tarantino, yeah. you know, film. Um, and it's like cinematic and beautiful and it's, it's really, really cool. Um, super proud of it. And we've got, uh, we're, we have an, another unannounced docu-soap for, for, for Netflix wow. and a, and a big show uh, with Amazon specifically for Spain. And I think that's the other thing that we've done yeah. a good job of is like taking what we do well, which is, you know, the US births basically unscripted TV in, in, in a real meaningful way. And mm -hmm. now with Amazon and with Netflix, it's very much global. But what we don't realize is like how new a docu-soap is to like the Spanish <laughs> audience, you know? And the way that they do it, is so like low rent that they're coming to American producers to like really kind of help elevate that storytelling. And we're taking advantage of, of that. It's awesome. My Spanish is terrible, but we're, we're we <laughs> no happen boy, to no. be, <laughs> yeah, we happen to be producing um, kind of all over the globe. Amazing. Well, congrats yeah. on all the success. Thank you. I'm continuing to watch your shows and enjoying them. Um, and it's great to hear your story. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks for having me.